With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom by simply visiting www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I came across a marvelous Facebook. I know, I know. What am I doing on Facebook? Well, you know, sometimes I go on Facebook and have a look. But I found a, a, a very interesting Facebook page called Pepper Kiwi. Oh, my goodness. Great videos. Well presented. Um, very professional looking, actually. And great little short clips about how to do things. Like, have you ever wanted to make sea salt? No, oh, there's a sort of 60-second clip that'll show you how to make sea salt here in New Zealand. Uh, Want to gather your own pepper? No, there's a video on how to gather your own pepper. And by the way, those video clips have um, had like nearly half a million views. So it's extraordinary. And behind it, behind Prepper Kiwi, is a lady called Carolyn Eichler and her friend Rose, whose name for now I forget, but we've just got Carolyn, but she'll introduce Rose to us. Caroline, good morning. Uh, good morning, Rodney. Nice to be here. Well, it's very lovely to have you. And in a funny way, I, when I when I saw your when I came across your Facebook, I thought, oh, this is about you know preparing for Armageddon, and in a way it is. But what I found so interesting about it was, it was all about the ones I saw at least were all about using local flora to feed yourself. Is that right? <laughs> That's yeah. right. At the start, uh, Rose Clark is her name, so yes, she's right. a, a friend, landscaping friend of mine. At the start, we weren't sure how the page or the idea would evolve because we have quite broad skills in a lot of areas, but it just seems to be that people want to know about survival in terms of what's free, what's available in New Zealand and what they can use. So that's why the salt and pepper ones are our biggest videos. Tell me, um, you say landscaper. Um, what does being a landscaper mean? So probably landscape gardener is a better term. So that's generally soft landscaping rather than hard landscaping, which is sort of your machinery side of it. So we've both got businesses. Mine is based on Waiheke and Roses is based in the city. So what you do is you go out and you do a quote either to uh, design and build a landscape design for somebody or most of it is not as exciting as that. Most of it is maintenance. That's the bread and butter of the industry. So you might be going out and shaping someone's buxus or you might be pruning their roses or their fruit trees. So it's just general maintenance and garden care. And how long have you done that for? Um, I think I've done that probably about 15 years. And is all your work on Waiheke? Uh, it has been, yes. In the past, I've worked in the city as well. But, um, yeah, it's not it's not easy commuting. <laughs> and if you need a bit of hard landscaping done, like a digger or something, do you just contract that to someone? That's right. That's right. I mean, it's sort of like any trade. You get to know people and you use the same people again and again. I don't know if this is a rude question, 
but I'll try. And if you say, mind your own business, you can <laughs> tell me to mind my own business and I won't be offended. But like, how do you quote for a job? And like you charge by the hour and guess how many hours it is. And then what would you charge per hour? And do you charge travel time? How does all that work when you're doing a pricing a job? It depends on what the job is. If it's just a main, and you've got to have that eye for it. So you need to walk into a property and be able to eyeball what is required. So that comes with experience. And um, from there, well, for us, me personally, um, being on a place like Waiheke, there's amazing gardens, there's large lifestyle blocks, etc. So if it's just that sort of job, there'd be a minimum that we would come out for, and that would be half a day. You can almost yes. think of it like uh, similar to what cleaners would do. They look at a job and they quote it in a similar way probably. They look at how long it would take to maintain that job and have a minimum amount of time. And for us, it would be half a day. Don't come mm. out for anything less than that. Um, I personally don't take any jobs that are difficult. <laughs> like say somebody's got uh, a lot of gorse that needs cleaning out. I would, I, I potentially would subcontract that out to somebody, but those days are over for me. Uh, Rose might be more keen on that being a bit younger, but um when you've built up an established business and you've got goodwill, you can kind of pick and choose the jobs. Mm. Does that exp explain it a bit? What the rate of for does. a garden? A rate for a gardener per hour, a good gardener, is anywhere between probably fifty-five and I don't know eighty dollars an hour. If they're consulting, say they're designing, it's going to be over a hundred dollars an hour. Gosh, you know, I'm so out of touch because. I mean, I get that quoted to me, and I just find, like, for things, not for gardening, I do that. But, you know, you get an electrician or something, and I, oh, I, I almost fall over yeah. when people quote the price. But then I work it all out, and, of course, there's been inflation, uh, things cost a lot, and it's just moved on from 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. And I'm still living 20 years ago, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so well, good on you. And is how much of your business is regular? Because there'd be people who just want regular garden maintenance, wouldn't there? Well, that is the bread and butter of the industry. If you don't have that regular work, you can't budget, you can't predict where you're going to be. Yeah. And um, a lot of people do make that mistake in that industry of going for the design, going for um, the one-offs. They aren't regular, yeah, big cleanups. I mean, that's somebody else's <laughs> job. That's not a job for me. But the reason that I've always done maintenance is because in 2008, 2009, um, uh, when, you're, when you're a gardener, you're often working for very wealthy people who have um, – I always say I could never afford myself as a gardener. Yes. <laughs> you're working for very wealthy people and often business people and in 2008, 2009, I noticed that they sort of shut purse on things like, you know, a $50,000 landscape design and build, but they never shut the door on the maintenance. And that was a wake-up call to me to be very careful to, um, one, spread, never never have all your eggs in one basket, but always keep that maintenance. Um, and also to make sure that you did um, – really respect those customers you had and look after them 
Um, You've been very nice to your customers in the good times because um, you're going to need them in the hard times. Yes, I've always been, and they will support you when you look after people like that. Mm. Um, one trap that people fall into is that usually around Christmas time, you'll get people literally chasing your vehicle because it's sign written, wanting you to do a job before Christmas. Um, and I always have a rule, no new clients in December, because that's when my existing clients usually need extra jobs done. Um, how did you get into landscaping? So what happened was I've always been around gardens my whole life. My parents and grandparents are gardeners, so I grew up with that. But I didn't go into that. In fact, I've got an education that's nothing to do with gardening. But I went into retail. I worked in pharmacy for quite a few years, so I had quite a lot of retail experience. And then there was sort of a change in my life where I needed another job. And what I did was there was a job going in a garden centre So I applied based on my retail experience and uh, got that job. When I went in there, it turned out I discovered that, so I was probably in my 30s then, I discovered that everyone didn't have the same knowledge that I had in terms of gardening, which was quite surprising to me because I'd grown up around it. You just just took it for granted, yeah. Yeah, I took it for granted that. People knew how to plant a potato, for example, or they'd planted carrots before. So that was a real eye-opener to me. So I walked in there just on that retail sort of sales experience, and I I ended up managing that place. So that was a placemaker's garden centre. I managed that for a couple of years, and from there, people came in and were asking me to come out and do jobs. So (laughs) one thing led to another. So people wanted me to personally come out and plant for them or select trees and plant for them. And the money was just so much better. Mm. So, and, so and that you started. Have your That's right. You're your own boss, but are you not tied down to that? But your money, money is a big factor in that. And presumably on Waiheke, there are a lot of like holiday homes that people that have holiday homes just want maintain the garden maintained for when they go there for the weekend or their holiday break that's right i've always sort of in the i don't advertise now i don't need to but in the past when i did advertise i always sort of my lead-up line was you know don't spend your time on waiheke mowing the lawns and looking after the garden no let us do that Mm. Yeah, because whenever i think about having a batch i think i'm flat stick looking after the house i've got that's the right. idea just, of adding yeah. another house is just like more work, double the work. And That's right. um, I always think I'd rather go half as much and have an Airbnb or something and have someone else run around and mow the lawns. That's right, yeah. <laughs> I, when I go to holiday places, um, it always amuses me that you turn up there and everyone's out mowing the lawns, doing the gutters, fixing things up, and you're thinking, some holiday. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see it all the time. Mm. Those are, yeah, those, I mean, if you can afford it, not everyone can afford to have a gardener in and, you know, somebody doing your gutters and their swimming pool. And the, mm. I mean, it, it's actually a lot of money when you add it up on some of these properties. Mm. But there's a lot of people that have it, right? Uh, in, in certain areas, certainly on Waiheke Island, um, parts of Auckland where Rose would be working. So she's working in 
places like Koimaramara, uh, you know, it's a higher income bracket, the, the area yes. that we specifically work anyway. I, I always think about the places in New Zealand that would, when I drive around, you know, who could, who's got good gardens here? Who who could sort of afford the, the type of gardening that I like to do? And uh, those places are quite limited, really. When I was a kid growing up in the 60s, I'm, I might be stepping out here, but I grew up in a little town called Rangura in Canterbury, and there was about 5,000 people, I think, then. Um, yep. No one had ever heard of a gardener. <laughs> you know what I mean? It just wasn't a thing. Oh. I made you, I made, maybe in Christchurch and Fendleton people had gardeners, but it just did. And, I mean, now it's it's quite a common. I At the weekend, I met an electrician who says he can make more money uh, as an electrician, but he works for another person landscaping like you. Wow. And he said, mm. I just so love it. Yeah. yeah he said, I, I think... just so love being around nature and working in nature. And um, compared to, he says, I regard in electrical work as just work, but uh, landscaping, he said, I love it. Yeah, that's a very common to hear that. And it's 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 such an opposition to when I worked in pharmacy, your type of customer is different in both of them. Um, in gardening, clients, are, they come out and they just say things like, I wish I could spend the day here just working and chatting with you. Like everyone lo loves the idea of being out in the garden. Mm. In pharmacy, I'm sort of stepping outside preparation, but um, we take a lot of pills, don't we? We do, yeah. I mean, this is this ties into my background and what we do on Prepper Kiwi because I talk about a lot of plants that we can grow and harvest in a traditional medicinal way because I've got experience in a pharmacy and in the one I was in, it had a very large natural health range, probably larger than the majority of pharmacies. So I was quite versed in the products that we were selling, for example, echinacea or mm. um, clover. But I didn't at that stage, hadn't really investigated the plants and learnt about whether they grew in New Zealand and how they were prepared but I always sort of go back to that past and I think about the people that came in that were using them. I know about the companies that are making them and how their reps work. Um, so, I, yeah, I do have an inside onto both sides of that as well. So the pharmaceutical industry, I'm familiar with their reps and the connection to the doctor, et cetera. So it's, it's quite a change for me to be outside of that system, foraging in the bush, looking for plants and filming it on Facebook. So tell me how, so tell me now about Kiwi Prepper, what it's about and how you got into it and then, so how you got into it and then how you came to think about this Facebook page. So what happened, because Rose and I are in an industry that's quite dominated by men, we kind of gel together. So we do have connections in that industry but because we're females I guess we connected together and we talk about different types of plants and things so it was and then we realized we had quite a lot in common different interests similar philosophies and it was 
so gardeners are often philosophers. This is there's a lot of discussions that happens in gardens, and we often talked about the economy and you know all sorts of things that were happening, and we were concerned that people didn't have enough of the skills that we had. Because if you cast your mind back to the 1940s or 50s, the skills that Rose and I have would have been common, but they've disappeared. And those skills are vital if something goes wrong. We'd already seen the 2000, 2008, 2009 um, economic sort of disruption in New Zealand. So we were aware of that and sort of didn't believe that it had been corrected. Uh, so we ourselves were sort of preparing, but I think it was about during the Christchurch mosque incident, we really said to each other, hey, this idea we've had about, you know, presenting what we know, I think we need to step it up. It, it kind of was a catalyst for us to start really thinking about what we should do. We We didn't really have any idea. So this is pre-pandemic. We didn't have any idea about what we were preparing for really except perhaps economic hard times and then of course the pandemic hit and there was all sorts of things that the that became sort of aware to us we had a youtube channel at that stage and we used to do weekly lives on there we'd talk about what we thought was happening and that's kind of what started it we talked about um medicines how how much stockpile the country would have. Sort of my own experience in pharmacy helped with that. And from there, oh, we did hunting as well. So Rose is a keen hunter. We talked about hunting. And if you see our photo on our Facebook page, you'll see there's a picture of us together when we've been hunting um, in the Bay of Plenty. And we just weren't sure what people would want to know. And on YouTube, it, it was quite good we were able to live stream there but then we also thought well how about we spread those well, let's not have those eggs in every basket so we started a facebook page on uh, a facebook page we also have a rumble page as a backup so it was really just a backup and that's the one that took off so we sort of stick with that one mainly at the moment how interesting and so how did you learn about because I saw some trolls saying, "Oh, you're going to die, right? Because you're not buying your food from the supermarket." Um, how did you learn what's you can eat, how you can prepare it, and how you can use it? Where did you learn that from? So some of it is just from knowledge from my family. So I've got a gardening family um, back, you know, forever probably. And so that link has never been broken. So I can ask my mum uh, and previously my grandmother. So already had a really good understanding of plants and how they were prepared. And I've just expanded on that, just got curious about different ways of storing that perhaps storing food that is different to what I know. So just done a lot of research on that. For example, um, I've just posted a video on pemmican, which is a dehydrated meat mixed with fat used by the American Indians to travel great distances carrying a light load. So that was just one that I did research on and thought, right, I've never done that. How about we try it out? So that was based on research and what other people were saying about it. And the same with 
what can you eat? I've got a research background, so I've got a master's in science, but it's not to do with plants. But I use those skills to go and look at experiments done on plants and look at the phytochemicals or plant chemicals inside them and work out from there what's dangerous. And, of course, a lot of plants are used in medicine and there is a lot of research on their toxicity. So if you know how to research that, you know where to find the information, then you can apply it to your foraging. So if the proverbial hits the fan, I should head to your place. Probably. Because, <laughs> like, you and Rose can hunt and get food. You could, you could survive, right? That's right. The difference between us and a lot of other people who are in the same boat as us is they tend to be much more secretive. So we do have friends who have similar skills to ourselves, but you don't see them online. You, we might talk to them in private, but they they tend to be more lone wolf. They don't tend to be out there sharing what they know, where for me, I'm really about community. It would disturb me if people around me can't look after themselves. They're not prepared. So that's a big part of it for us. I think as a group, the community is very important that they know what to do, that they're prepared. Because for me and Rose, yeah, it would be no problem for us just to go into the bush. We'll just head off. We're gone and we'll be in there, you know, laughing and talking philosophy and eating beautiful meat and harvesting berries from the bush. But <laughs> we would know that outside people were in trouble. When, when times are hard or there's a, a disaster, then people can get quite, uh, they turn to crime and they get desperate. You, when you know what we know, the, the sort of unsort of foreseen perhaps side effect of that is that you're very calm of mind. Even, mm. even if you don't have to use the knowledge that you have, just knowing that you can do it is calming. In itself. It's, it's been quite a period in New Zealand and indeed around the world for thinking about how vulnerable your lifestyle is and what you would do if a particular circumstance hit. And we get I remember I'm much better prepared now than I was, but I remember getting in like a two-hour power cut and my world would fall apart. <laughs> I've lived without power now for six months. And it's not, I mean, it's not been an issue. But when you just expect to turn a switch and have something come on and pop to the supermarket, and have a fridge full of food, um, when things don't quite work out, then you feel extremely vulnerable. And like we've had, as you say, the terrorist attack in, in Christchurch. What have we had? We've had the uh, Christchurch earthquakes. 
Um, we've had the COVID scare and lockdowns. Um, the Kaikoura earthquakes. What else have we had? Fires? Flooding. Flooding? Oh, yes. Flooding. We've and just it's about funny. had it all. <laughs> yes. And, and it's funny because the flooding has never affected me and I've never witnessed it other than watching, you know, the news or Facebook. And it doesn't, it doesn't hit home. Because mm. you sort of read it and, oh, yeah, okay, but it didn't hit home. For example, with Christchurch, I wasn't there for the earthquake, but I went down, I don't know, the day or two after, and they took me into the red zone, and I knew Christchurch well. And I remember going back to Wellington and to Auckland and particularly walking down Newmarket and picturing, say, Cashel Street, just all the buildings over. Mm. And you're thinking, goodness me, what, what would you do? You're in, Newmark you're in Newmarket and all those buildings are coming down. And I got very worried after Christchurch living in Wellington because you are easily trapped in Wellington if there's an earthquake. There was a scare. There was an earthquake scare while I was living in Wellington. And all the civil servants decided to go home early. And they couldn't, the trains couldn't run because they were worried about the lines being um, crooked. And it just gridlocked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you think, I think you're, you're stuck. I think that's why we see people moving around at the moment. People understand that. They feel the same way and they're looking for alternatives. The city really isn't a good place to survive. It's not a good place to forage for food. It's uh, barren, really, isn't it? And well, a disaster. In a disaster, you're mm. absolutely, and also, of course, in a disaster, and you've got other people to contend with. That's so right. So it's not just looking after you and your family. Everyone else is trying to look after them and their family. And if they get desperate, that becomes its own set of terrors. That's right. You've got a, a, a huge group of people there, quite dense, um, that uh, you know can be quite desperate in those situations. So how do you think... It's Kiwi Prepper. We'll get onto the foraging, but what are the sort of things that you are mindful of, you and Rose, of occurring that you need to be prepared for? How do you what's your how do you think about being prepared and being able to look after yourself? What what's the like do you list off earthquake, fire, volcano, terrorist attack? mad government like we've had in the past. Um, <laughs> do you tick all those things off? Or is it just this general sense of being of water, food, shelter, and being able to get by with not much, and whatever happens, you'll be okay? I think that's definitely the start of it, those basics, making sure that, that we do have water, shelter, food, and safety, of course. So those ones are paramount. And from then on, you know, you can look and think about different things like, you know, what would happen in an earthquake? 
what would happen if one of these volcanoes goes off, um, a rogue government, um, you know, there's like a lot of had. war. There's yeah, there's a lot of war in the world at the moment, yes. so that should be at the back of somebody's mind, I think. That could cause all sorts of things. It could cause food shortages. Um, I think we just sort of um, tack and jibe depending on what's going on because are we definite, definitely I can see people are struggling, struggling economically. Um, in Auckland, I can see lots of empty uh, commercial buildings, uh, so empty as in nobody is uh, leasing them. So there's something happening in the economy there that's probably not going to have a very good trickle down effect. And so, and uh, and um, a lot of our seeds are imported from overseas. Uh, we just aren't growing enough to. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yes, a lot of people don't know that. Um, people come up with ideas like. I'm just going to grow microgreens, but that's a lot and lot of seeds for, you know, you're eating hundreds of cabbages, we'll say, in, in one sort of sitting. And where are those seeds coming from? If somebody's uh, growing microgreens in bulk, those seeds are coming from overseas. So they could be disrupted quite quickly. Um, a lot of people can't afford to um, be growing microgreens. They don't have access to their own property where they can grow. They might be moving around a bit more. Um, agricultural societies are uh, for a stable society. And it's sort of my feeling in roses as well. I expect that we aren't as stable as we should be. We ha ten seem to have a lot of people uh, quite transient moving around. So that's why we've sort of moved into the foraging side of it as well because um, I'd like people to be confident that if they do have to move, they can at least gather from nature what is there growing rather than – it's easier in some ways. I think it's easier. I mean, that would be my approach if something goes wrong. I'm not too fussed about, you know, setting up a garden. I'll probably just head to the ocean, fish, and uh, maybe do a little bit of hunting and, you know, eat what nature has provided and gather any m medicinal herbs that I need along the way. The um, That's the advice, isn't it, is to have a wee fishing line and head to the coast in New Zealand. It is, but... You need to be, I mean, our coasts are quite rugged, so you need to have, um, be aware of that. And I mean, there's certainly plenty of food out there, but it's whether you can get it or not. And I mean, I mean, there's days when I've been fishing and I've not caught anything. So um, you might be, might be very hungry. But there are other people who, who have a passion for diving and fishing and they have quite big pages like that area is covered and I hope people who are thinking about that definitely get their fishing skills up and their snorkeling skills up because our coasts are very rugged very very rugged we live in Otago and um I have to put on my big boy pants because we could live forever on rabbits. Mm. <laughs> You're not going to. There's like, I was going to get some chooks, and I thought, hey, hang on, um, I've got thousands of rabbits running past my door. Um, 
but I haven't quite bucked up the courage. I'm a bit squeamish. You know what I mean? I can kill a rabbit. But I go to I go to cut it up. And I can cut it up okay. Right? I've never been a fisherman. I can cut the rabbit up okay, but I just can't get to the bit where I'm dealing in blood and guts and then I'm cooking it and eating it. Ooh. And the funny thing is I can eat rabbit if I haven't cut up and cut it. So um <laughs> My thing, my my nine-year-old is all keen. He gets rabbits and starts cutting them up. And um, I say, oh, not tonight, son. Because um, <laughs> I sort of look at it and I feel a bit, maybe I have to sort of hide away while he does it. Um, maybe. But that's, that was my thinking. I thought, I think, gee whiz, we've got so many rabbits. You couldn't, you you, you know, you can shoot 100 rabbits and you wouldn't know. That's right. I mean, and in the past, people did eat a lot of rabbits. My uncles and aunties as well, they often talk about in the past checking rabbit traps on the way to school when they were mm. really young. Mm. Um, and and one, of, one of my uncles, you know, he claims he can skin a rabbit in, I don't know, under a minute or something, 60 seconds, something like that. Um, I haven't seen him do that, but well, uh, it just, show, just shows you that um, those skills certainly can be you know, if people were doing that in the past, there's a reason for that. You know, yes. it's um, plentiful and easy to catch. I have, like rabbits. I have recently, um, with Wally Richards' help, developed a passion for gardening. Mm. And I've got a bountiful garden. But, oh, my goodness, I can't imagine living. I was reflecting on this with our early settlers. And you imagine you arrive and you climb over the port hills or whatever, and you think, oh my goodness, I've got to, you know, eke out a living here. I can't imagine relying on my vegetable at the moment, right? I don't have sufficient mm. skills. Mm. I got to still run off to the supermarket because I never staggered my lettuce planting appropriately, or um, my potatoes aren't quite, quite ready. And yet, a couple of generations ago, three generations ago, four generations, and then forever, people actually relied on their gardening and hunting skills and their farming skills to feed their family. That's right. So my parents did do that, and also my grandparents. So I'm probably the only one that hasn't really, you know, set up a huge garden and be mm. labouring over it. But I do garden for other people. But um, yeah, it's just. Those skills, they take a little while to build up. Um, it sounds so easy to plant a lettuce, and it is. Yes, but, but to rely on it. <laughs> and, and, of course, there's different lettuces for different seasons and different parts of the country. Uh, you know, some grow better in winter, some grow in summer, some grow super quick. Um, but they're so easy to grow, you can end up with a massive glut and then you haven't staggered it or you've got not enough room. Mm. It's a learning curve. It takes a couple of seasons, so a couple yes. of years, really. And you you do have to make those mistakes, and then people mm. will talk about it and say, uh, you know, oh, you really don't need to plant a hundred lettuces all at once. But and even that is quite fiddly to just to plant a few. You really only need a few going at once, and yes. just stagger them through the season. Yes, and then uh, and knowing your local microclimate where your garden is. That's um, right. You need to put your uncle 
on your Facebook for me. I do. I, I do. He's a great gardener. Okay, no, but put him on the one that can skin a rabbit in a minute. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I should get put, him doing it. Yeah, put him on. Show us him skinning in a minute with a clock <laughs> on so we can see whether he's, mm. a, he's, a, he's, he's telling us the truth. And then mm. have him explain how you do it. Yeah. And maybe if I watched that a hundred times, I could overcome the squeamishness uh, yeah. of it. Because um, what do you hunt? Uh, me personally, I tend to be more of a fisher, okay. fisherman. So I'm, I've am i lived by the coast my whole life, so that's sort of my approach to it. Um, and I would be more of a small game person, I probably because they're heavy. They're heavy. Yeah. Um, I personally like um, things like rabbits and uh, ducks and goats. Smaller, smaller game would be. So you my, eat them. You eat rabbits. I, I have. I've eaten possum as well, but I'm not particularly keen on that. Um, probably wouldn't eat that again. Uh, rabbit is rabbit is that's food of the kings. Um, mm. So is pheasants and uh, deer, obviously. We've got a lot of deer in this country, but we've got a lot of goats as well. And in my experience, they taste just like uh, just like lamb. They're not as fatty as lamb, but uh, most people wouldn't be able to tell the difference between well, the those thing and is, I, I don't eat fish. And, ah, um, okay. But if you're hungry, you might. <laughs> yeah, there's fish and there's fish though. There's fish and there's fish. Yeah, um, I also true. eat shellfish as well, so I'm a diver as well. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, it's just you do what you know best, I think. And uh, those are areas. It's an area that I'm more confident in. And but, what does um, Rose hunt? She hunts big game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So she's more of a big game hunter. Um, but you're probably more of a hunter than fishing, and I don't think she dives from memory, uh, so she's more inland. Yeah, she's really into that. She's done a lot of hunting. Um, and She looked quite formidable on Facebook <laughs> when she goes hunting. Like, she's not someone I'd want to blunder across um, <laughs> and get on the wrong side of when she's carrying her gun. Oh, she's a responsible gun owner, so oh, I'm it's sure. unlikely you'd have any problems. Yeah. Um, and do you have a gun? My, I have a slug gun, but so I don't have anything that's required to have a license. I've also got a hunting bow, um, but that's not required to have a license either. So I'm out of the system. <laughs> well, that's what's always stopped me. Um, because to get rabbits, you're best to have a um, a gun. Well, slug gun is slug gun is fine for rabbits. Yeah, you where don't... I live, you got to get pretty. How far away can you get a rabbit with your slug gun? Oh, fifty meters. No, oh, you see, you're so <laughs> how good. close do you have to be, right? <laughs> oh, I sort of miss it ten meters. <laughs> you've got to sit out there. You've got to sit out there and watch them. At... <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. Well, you definitely shouldn't be no, having well... a gun. No, I'm hopeless. And um I might I might set some traps or something, but I, I'm there, I'm not a good shot and I got glasses now and it's oh, all yeah. a bit I can see two rabbits when I'm trying to shoot. Which <laughs> one am I trying to shoot? And, and and then I get wobbly and then I think, Oh, my back's hurting and I'm sitting here trying to shoot this rabbit. 
Um, but I didn't want to get a gun gun because I had a friend come with a gun gun, and I mean, he just he could just shoot 30 rabbits in a few minutes, literally. Yeah. I did. Well, they'd run off but come back, and he'd ping another couple. But it's this idea that once you get a gun, the police can just turn up and inspect your house, you want a registrar, um, you can get hassled by the police. They probably wouldn't because, you know, they've got better things to do. But it's just such a palaver. So I thought, well, I'll just get a slug gun. By the way, my son is a better shot than me, so I'll get him to shoot the rabbits. Um, yeah, and I think it depends, you know, sort of what network you have. Um, so, I mean, well, I've got a, a slug gun, which is capable of, you know, small, very small sort of uh, animals. And then I've got a hunting bow, which is capable of a bigger animal. So I don't really need – but, of course, it's a lot more skill to catch a um, – a bigger animal with a hunting bow than it is a gun, mm. but it's it's a, and of course there's rules around your bows. They have to be powerful enough for you to be allowed to take them into the um, forest. They don't, you know, you're not allowed to take in sort of weak, weak hunting bows and you know just, just tap hurt, them on an animal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You so meeting you two in the bush would be sounding a bit like <laughs> Deliverance. Oh, yeah, we might be up there, and you never know where we are in ghillie suits sitting in the bush. Yeah. <laughs> and in the – what about water? How do you prepare for with water? So on Waiheke Island, everyone has their own water tanks and uh, own septic as well. So that – I think when I first moved to Waiheke, because I wasn't born there, I emptied someone's water tank in a day, you know, just washing, you know, a pair of jeans a couple of times – I, I was, I just was used to leaving the tap running and, you know, having, you know, 20, 30 minute showers. So that was a, a real wake up call. And um, I think that in, in the early days, Rose and I did do a bit of a video about, you know, water, collecting water is a, is a major thing. You've either got to have something to collect it in, you've got, you've got to put it somewhere or you've got to make uh, an area where it will collect, or you've got to know where the streams are. For somebody like me, I I definitely pay more attention to where the streams are, where the springs are. We often uh, walk through the bush looking to see the where the streams are and where the springs come out. Uh, I think that's really important um, because water is important for not only yourself, but if you are going to be running a garden where you're staying you need to have water don't you mm. and and it's and it's this gardening that sort of makes you look at the landscape and it's when you're looking at this landscape that you become aware of areas that flood so i think this is sort of a side effect of gardening as well is that people are forced to take more pay more attention to the natural layout of the land the way, you know, you can look up at the hills and you should be able to see how much rain can come down. If you're somewhere like the Kaimais, for example, very uh, a lot of hill there, a lot of streams in there all coming together and then you should be able to see there's, you know, a big flood plain and um, you should be able to work out where you don't want to be living and where you do. Um, I think one of the problems with, these sort of floodplains is that all the good soil is down there as well. So that's a catch-22, and I think that's why people often get stuck in these sort of flat areas that 
uh, they're just so productive. It's sort of mm. um, misleading how safe you are in those areas. It's interesting what you say about being observant and being um, interested in it. I never was. For example, I never understood why we had weather forecasts because in my early days I'd work outside and if it got wet, you know, I'd get wet. If it rained, I'd get wet. And then later on, I was always in an office. And I had no interest in it other than running from the car um, to work, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. And, <laughs> and then I'm now doing gardening and outside a lot, and I'm fascinated by the weather. And I'm, I keep an eye on the forecast and, you know, I, I know what the wind is going to do. I know what the weather's going to do. And then likewise, once I got gardening, I became so observant about what's happening in the garden. I used to just, my mother would be showing off her garden and my dad always had a great veggie bin and I'd never notice it. I just yeah, had no, no interest in it. And you just, if you want something, you go to the supermarket. The idea that you would grow it was incomprehensible to me. Yeah, you're right. Uh, most people are like that. And it's not until they go out and start looking at these things, gardening or hunting even, where you're, when someone's out hunting, you'll find a lot of hunters are actually very good um, in terms of what's growing in the bush because the animal they're hunting is also eating certain plants and mm. they're only they may only be there at a certain time of the year. They may be moving around. So you develop this understanding. Um they may be in a different place in a different weather. And it's the same in the ocean. You soon learn, you know, you can't walk barefoot on oyster rocks and you learn there's the, about the tides, the king low tide and the king high tides and what that exposes. And the fish all have a cycle. They move around, and it's all connected to the moon. And yeah, it's it's such a big connection, and it's not until you actually go out and participate in it that you get those skills back, and the weather is a critical part of that. Mm. Uh, you're on Reality Check Radio. It's real talk with uh, Rodney Hyde, and uh, we're having a fascinating talk, uh, talking to Carolyn Eichler. And she's got a Facebook page, her and Rose Clark, called Prepper Kiwi. And it's wonderful. And that's what we're discussing, that preparation. I have a friend who's a, um, I hope he's not listening. Um, he's a bit, what's it when you get obsessive? He's a bit obsessive. <laughs> and after the Christchurch earthquakes, which he was in the middle of, he became obsessive about um, being prepared and like he's got he spent a, he spent an arm and a leg a small fortune getting all this equipment and gear and what can happen and drinking straws and uh, bows and arrows and crossbows and throwing axes and uh, mostly weapons no um, but he's and he's got go bags in every vehicle go bags at every place like he wouldn't go into town without a go bag uh, ready to go because he got caught in the earthquake. Mm. And so you can sort of understand it. And the funny thing is he will read something in these on the internet about what you need and have to rush off and get it. And I, I myself came to a conclusion that 
maybe resilience is not about having everything ready to go, but a state of mind and an attitude. I think you're right. I th from my perspective, that would be how I look at it. It's being adaptable under pressure. I yes. think, and having the skills, having the skills and required. And backing, backing yourself that you can cope. That's right. That's right. I mean, we've had quite a few pressurised years um, with the pandemic, and that was a real eye-opener in terms of who could, um, what's called anti-fragile, I guess you know what that is. That's the term yeah, coined by Nassim Salib. So you grow under pressure. For example, there's a tree, the cypress tree, uh, they bend into the wind. So when you look at them and they're bent, the wind is actually coming towards the way they bend. So that's an anti-fragile plant. And some people are like that. They really do well under pressure. Yes. And I think that type of person, um, I, I probably consider myself and Rose that type of person, um, it's you sort of grow you almost look forward to a bit of pressure coming on to challenge yourself because it's those experiences that help you grow and I think we need to be careful not to not to think that a whole lot of uh, material things are going to be our solution if I just go back to the pemmican which the American Indians um, made to travel that's the reason that people could um, make a lot of money in the fur trade is because they adopted or they had faith that these people could travel with these very light loads because the British, for example, you know, they had packs and packs and packs, you know, really prepared. But it wasn't possible, the amount of calories that they were consuming, it wasn't possible to travel those distances with the um, amount of weight that mm. they had. So you can you can be prepared Till the cows come home, Rodney, but it's more about your mind and sort of having faith in yourself that you've got what it takes to, you know, walk out of here. I mean, uh, uh, people talk about bug out bags and uh, things like that. I think you are your best asset in that bug yeah. out bag. Mm. I had a, I had that experience. I had an old car that I loved and I learned to fix it up. And then whenever I'd go, traveling in it, I would think, oh, X, Y, Z can happen. And so I'd always take a big toolkit, and I was always worried that I'd have the tools necessary, spare fan belts and things like that. And then I got to a place where I actually backed myself to fix it with what tools I had, which was another level of fixing this car. And that's, I guess, what I was thinking about with being resilient. Not that I particularly am. I'm probably that fragile little flower, not that hardy cypress tree. But I think <laughs> about it, and I think, and I think about it a lot for my children, because, like you, I think we could be heading for rough times. Mm. And when you think about preparing them. Um, I think a lot about their resilience and their ability under pressure to be calm and think through problems. And it's funny thing is that we can you can instill that in a child, 
And I think we've lost that. My kids are actually now pretty good at it. Um, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, you know, and I do that by taking them camping and uh, hiking and just things that are uncomfortable and getting through. And, you know, you go hiking and you get to a place and you think, well, the only person that's going to get us out of here is us on our two little legs. Um, and so we do it or we forgot something or we haven't got food. We're just going to have to make two. And it's, I notice with them that have become into that uh, state of mind where they don't whine and complain. They attend to it and fix it. Yeah, that's a good place to be, isn't it? It's an extremely good place to be. Um, by the way, I'm, you know, I'm, I don't do these things, so I'm talking about observing it, but my kids are big into jiu-jitsu, which has been amazing. Because what that has taught them is you can, when you're rolling someone or fighting someone in a competition, you can be extremely uncomfortable, right? Because mm. they'll have a little kid got their arm around them and starting to choke them. And what they learn in jiu-jitsu is to think it through. And you watch them over time as they learn the skill of jiu-jitsu and they'll have a, someone giving them a sore arm or starting to choke them around the ear pipes or the carotid. And you can see these little kids saying, hang on, I'm not, I'm not out yet. And they'll think their way through it and use their technique. And it's like this massive problem solving. When you're extremely uncomfortable... And that's what we don't have in our modern world because we expect to be extremely comfortable at all times. That's right. We do. We've just come to um, expect that. I was reading recently about um, one of the early boats that came to New Zealand um, from England and I was thinking about what they packed with them and mm -hmm. One part of that story was the uh, the boat stopped and everyone was shooting. Everyone was shooting off the back at seabirds. And I was thinking, everyone packed a gun. Everyone yeah. took a gun with them. So things like having a means to get, and, and that would have been good food, um, you know, yeah, big, big good seabirds, food. good food for a long journey. It was a very long journey to get to New Zealand months to get here then. And they would have been observant of the weather as well. But... Um, Good work boots, good hunting and tramping boots, a gun and a knife and just a packet of, you know, a few seeds is really all you need to have, isn't it? And your knowledge. I had a, I had a gentleman on the show who was a prepper and he was very excellent and he got caught in the Kaikoura earthquakes and he said the stupid thing was he was very well prepared at home but when the earthquake hit, he was some kilometres from home in his car in Jandals. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, yeah. I didn't even have bloody shoes. And he said, I had to walk all this distance in my Jandals. He says, I've never gone in my car again without having shoes in the boot. Yeah. So being a landscaper, 
uh, or a gardener, you often travel with tools that are a multi-purpose, like the, the type of saw that we use is perfect yeah. for in the bush. Um, you always have you know, a pair of gum boots or a pair of tramping boots, several sometimes, several pairs of socks because you're changing them depending on the weather. You always have a jacket, a proper jacket, and, and generally water as well. So if I'm traveling, uh, those are normally just left in there. A lot of those things are just left yeah. in there. Um, what so do that you, if something does happen. What would you do in the bush for shelter? For shelter? Well, I've got um, a Gore-Tex bivy bag. So that's like a military grade, like a cocoon that goes over a sleeping bag. So that, that would be the type of thing that I would use um, and very lightweight. Um, if I was tra trapped in there, I guess I'd just um, find a suitable place and dig down and cover myself up with uh, bits and pieces. But again, the, the knowledge of different plants that are in there would give you a bit of a, um, a, a good understanding about what plants you could potentially use. And knowing which plants have got the wetters in them is probably one of the most important things I'd be worried about. <laughs> what? Oh, you don't want the wetters in your bed? <laughs> no, not, no, I don't like them. Isn't that funny? Mm. My wife would freak out if she saw a mice, a mouse. <laughs> She's um, hysterical about mice, mices, and um, and so that would be. Mind you, I imagine if you're stuck and it's Armageddon, you know, a few wetters would be the least of your worries. Um, I think there's just an innate response to them. Um, mm. They tend to get in my hair if they come inside. I don't know. Uh. They think it's a nest or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> but yeah, now, and they're very clingy too. <laughs> The, the thing that, <laughs> I remember Wayne Brown, uh, mayor of Auckland now, he used to head up the, I can't remember, the electricity part that run ran the grid. So he wasn't, he was a very clever engineer, very clever big picture thinking guy. And he came to see me when I was minister. And he was explaining the fragility of our national grid. You know, this is back over 10 years ago. Mm. And how it can just collapse. That's right. And then I was local government and I got involved with infrastructure in Auckland. And it's truly shocking how we've built, because, you know, you just get by each year and this water supply, water disposal and surge disposal, it's sort of just been built on top of it over the mm. years. And this infrastructure that you rely on can easily go woe. Yeah, well, living on Waiheke, that's um... – it's not really a problem because it's self-sufficient in, in most ways. So you um, have to have your own power supply, do you? You don't have to, but because your water is coming off your roof, you might have a you know, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 gallon tank, um, depending on what you've, you're using. Um, you've got water for starters, uh, so you can you know, just lift the lid on that and just bucket it out. So straight away you've got water. You've got a septic um, tank. And you've got a septic. So 
that's your water and your sewage sorted. Um, and most people have a barbecue, so, you know, you can barbecue for a long time. And a generator? A lot of people, uh, a lot of wealthy people have generators. Um, they don't publicise the fact. Uh, a lot of wealthy people on Waiheke are off the grid already, so they've mm. got some pretty flash setups um, and they've got big, big tanks of water. Uh, they're not going to be ha- having any um, issues if the if the grid goes down. It's just the people. Uh, so, so Prepper Kiwi isn't really um, addressing those people because they're already prepared uh, mm. and they've got the funds to cover the whole house and solar panels. It goes. It goes back to our point. They're prepared materially. Yeah, but you've that's got to true. be prepared mentally and philosophically too. Yes. Um, and funnily enough. Now that I think about it, I am one of those people that enjoy getting into problems. Mm. Yeah, I do. I actually <laughs> like. I get a huge pleasure <laughs> when my car breaks down. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, it's a learning uh, experience. Yeah, I just suddenly realise I am when things go wrong. I think, oh, this is exciting. Mm. So, funny enough, I hadn't thought of that until you said I actually do. Um, even stupid things like flat tires or someone someone's mm. got a big problem, and I actually, oh, this is great. Um, I don't because things come into perspective a lot. You know, it's dark, it's raining, and your car's broken down, and you're middle of nowhere. Yeah. There's no cell phone recovery coverage, yeah. and you think, oh, what do I do? I got to figure this out. Um. It's very rewarding. It's very rewarding when you're successful uh, in those sort of challenges and you go to another level. It's anything you do um, that you challenge yourself. A lot of people won't break through that. But once you challenge yourself, like like starting a uh, Facebook page and putting yourself up there for criticism is very difficult at the start. But if if you know that that – there's going to be a, a reward from that. You carry on, so you get to you actually like these challenges. You like to look for problems, almost as mm-hmm. as you're saying there. And this is what I noticed at the start of the pandemic was that some people were so broken by it. Then others were saying things like, "I feel like this is the time I was born for." And Do you know, I, and it broke I, me. I did it. Yes. I did it really. Mm-hmm. It, it, it totally broke me. And, I mean, it broke me in a strange way mm-hmm. because I thought I understood politics and how decisions were made, and, yes, they make dopey decisions. When they had that first lockdown, I didn't think it would last two days. Mm-hmm. Because I thought, there's no way people are going to put up with this nonsense. And it broke me because I watched friends and neighbours get into it and become little Nazis monitoring how long my kids were out playing in the park. Yeah, I, th- I think the problem there is 
people aren't adaptable. So for me, um, I didn't mind being shut down. I didn't mind that. It was, it was, it was everyone's behaviour that they just accepted it and would stand on a stand on a. I remember listeners might be sick of me. I think I've mentioned this once before, but I remember going to the supermarket. It was pouring with rain. We're standing outside the countdown on our yellow dot and everyone masked up and I'm sitting there. I try and jog along and not be a nuisance because I'm used to being um, thinking differently to everyone else and so I, I know not to create trouble. So I'm sort of complying in a desultory way and not trying to upset anyone. And you're standing there and there's this young mum in front of me with a jolly toddler standing in the rain apologising to everyone because she had a toddler with her because you only allowed Mm. one person to go shopping. (laughs) And there's someone at the door letting you in when someone goes out. And that broke me because I thought, how could you do that to a young... How could you do that to people? How could you do that to a young man? And, of course, everything else that we know about. And so what broke me, I guess, was our government's performance, our opposition's performance, all our government department's performance, everyone around me's performance. And I left Christchurch, and once I got out of Christchurch, I was fine. Because mm. it, it was the behaviour of, well, you realise how bad things can happen. That's right. It was a real eye-opener how people behaved. And and it was an eye-opener just how reliant people were on the government rather yes. than on their communities and, and on themselves and the weakness mm. in their emotional strength. They, they couldn't see through it. They weren't calm. They were panicked. No. And it was very difficult to find out who was going to act that way um, myself I'm a beekeeper so <clears throat> I wasn't really locked down I was able to drive around uh-huh. and visit my beehives which were on several different properties and there was I, I was able to witness another side of the population who weren't locked down at all there were people out fishing there were, yeah. I saw you know that there were people at the beach on Waiheke I drove past one of the beaches and I just stopped and stared. It was covered in people. It looked like something from, I would say, the 1970s. People were down there with wine glasses on the beach. You couldn't <laughs> see them. You couldn't see them. And I stopped and, and, I, and people turned around. They were just sitting there with a, a wine. And I said, oh, sorry, I just can't believe people are down here. People were just wandering up and down the streets talking to you. Um, so there was sort of two sides to how people yeah. handled that. Um, and being being of calm mind uh, is, is um, so important. It's detrimental to your health not to mm. be um, able to sort of work out how to put yourself in that position. Mm. Fascinating. That's Kiwi Prepper. We've been talking to Carolyn Eichler. And I do encourage you to go to her Facebook page, uh, Prepper Kiwi and Rose Clark's got wonderful videos and I don't expect everyone to rush out and get a hunting bow. I won't be, but um, 
to think about how we can be prepared, but also just wonderful little things. I'm going to try that, making that sea salt, Carolyn. That's good. Just for the yeah. fun of it. It just looked fun, right? Well, I learned that as a child. I used to do that when I was five or six. My mum would send us to the beach to make sea salt because we didn't have the internet then and you had to keep kids entertained. Yeah. And, of course, the thing about the great thing about the internet is you can find out, you can, like, Google how to make salt. And you think back to the day, it's like I, I'm a big bed breaker, bed, bread baker, and I learned to mm. bake bread by, you know, searching the internet. But our nanas could bake bread, and um, they didn't even have books on how to bake bread, but they learned from their mum. That's right. And dads learned how to shoe a horse from dad. You know, it was like those skills were passed down and we're actually having to relearn them. We get excited when we grow a lettuce and it would have been nothing to previous generations to, I mean, it was just a nothing to my parents' generation to grow everything you ate. I had, I, I, I do go on Facebook and I had a great thing that came, popped up on Facebook and or, or, or X or something and I saw, and it said, um, to those people that want to save the planet and are running around protesting, they, you should say to them, here's a good thing that you can do. Grow everything that you need to eat next year. Exactly. exactly. And I love that, right? Mm. You know, because you can imagine these kids who are out there, not so young kids, protesting and throwing stuff at beautiful paintings about climate. Oh, yeah. and all. Mm. If you just said to them, just produce everything that you're going to eat for next year. And it would literally improve their mental health and their outlook and actually be the best thing they could do for the planet. Yeah, I think you're probably right there. Um, what you were saying there about handing down that knowledge through families, that's definitely how it was done. And at the moment, you know, we've got this whole generation and several generations that don't have that knowledge. No. And the benefit of this social media is um, that we're well aware of is we can reach so many more people. Yes. I mean, I know, look how many people viewed that salt one. I know, and half the, a million. It's astonishing, isn't it? I already knew that people didn't know how to do that because I've shown people individually in the past. I've said, oh, I've just made some sea salt. So, you know, five or six, but using this platform, I can show, you know, you know, half a million people and it's yeah. so easy. And then they'll show their kids. One of the things about this platform, which is uh, unusual, when I think about it from a business point of view, is that success of this platform, this Prepper Kiwi, is also the end of the platform. The goal is that everyone will end up knowing as much as Rose and I do, and then there'll be no need for it anymore. It'll yes. just carry on. So that's, yes. that's an unusual – the more success, it's going to uh, shut down in the, in the end, which is – there's an odd way to look at it. It is a funny way of looking at it. You're dead right. You're absolutely dead right because it's mm. not needed and we don't want it. No, but I was just meantime, common. I was just, just common in the 1950s. There would have been a lot of people like yes. myself and Rose. Yes. Um, so I, I hope we get back to that. Yes. Good for you, uh, Carolyn Eichler, Rarely Check Radio Real Talk. That was a real talk. What a wonderful woman. <laughs> She's got a lovely style. You can hear in her voice where 
it's quite hard to do. And she does it on her Facebook where she's explaining something and not coming across as a know-all and not making you feel stupid and inadequate. You've got a wonderful, wonderful style in those videos, Carolyn. It's sort of like you are a lovely teacher. Thank you. Thank you, Rodney. really appreciate we, that feedback. I, I can hear you in the voice. You take care. It's Rally Check Radio. Real talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, my goodness, aren't we blessed? Uh, such lovely, lovely people to talk to and such lovely, lovely listeners. Remember, you can send me your feedback, 2057. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. Oh, I feel all warm and cosy inside thinking about how people can look after themselves and look after others um, with the right attitude and the knowledge. Thank you for listening. With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom by simply visiting www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today.